Good morning. Let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We've got a lot to cover this morning. We're going to try to finish off the chapter. Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in tri tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as of the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. We'll stop there as verse 20 really fits with the next two chapters. A majestic portion of the Word of God, dominated by a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory. We'll look at that in detail when we come to it. We'll take it verse by verse. Just to comment on, on Gary's uh, comment earlier about the ladies' uh, missionary conference, much as I would like it to go another 50 years, I think the Lord is going to come well before that. Verse uh, 4, let's pick up here. 
John, as I said last week, really, this is an interesting letter, because it is a letter, you notice, by the way. We don't think of it as an epistle like Philippians or Thessalonians or Romans, but it is. It's a letter written by John to the churches of Asia. But it's, it's uh, unique in many ways, certainly its content. But also it's opening, it has a preface, verses 1 through 3, that none others have. We talked about that last time. And really now, verse uh, 4 through 8 is, uh, is the introduction, which is more typical that you expect to see like at the beginning of the Pauline epistles. But again, it's quite different uh, from the other introductions. It begins by stating the author, just like the Pauline epistles too. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of God, and so on and so forth. Well, here John... Uh, this is, remember John, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, to the seven churches which are in Asia. We're going to look at that in detail in a minute when they're named. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, really four and five in this introduction, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, it's a statement of the Trinity. You see that? Let's look at that. Uh, the first person, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. There's the Father, God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who's that? It's the Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, this actually came up in a devotional, I believe, last week as well. A brother asked me about that. Remember, when we go through Revelations, Revelation that there is a there is symbolic language, that there are pictures here. God is teaching something through Symbols and, and uh, simile and metaphor. So here he is saying something about the Holy Spirit when he's saying the seven spirits who are before his throne, which we see again uh, later in chapter 4. And finally, the third person of the Trinity, the Son, is in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And when he comes to the Son, who is the star, if you will, of this uh, letter, he gives uh, quite a long description characteristics, if you will, of the Son of God. Okay, before we get into this uh, verbal description of the Lord Jesus and some of his attributes, let me just uh, refer you to back to Isaiah chapter 11 real quick. Keep your finger in Revelation. Isaiah chapter 11. This is a uh, prophetic passage talking about the Lord Jesus. and may fit with the description of the Holy Spirit in Revelation chapter 1 as the seven spirits, because there are seven titles here given to the Holy Spirit. Uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. You should know this passage. And here's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, first title, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of Wisdom, second title. And understanding, third. The spirit of counsel, fourth. And might, fifth. The spirit of knowledge, sixth. And finally, and of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. There are seven titles given to the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. Very simply, it may just be that God is telling us of the perfection and completeness of the second person of the Godhead. As we said last time, uh, numbers and colors and other things are quite symbolic in the book of Revelation. Number seven signifies perfection or completion. Let's go on and read here because there's another uh, verse that's going to come into play as we continue through Revelation here in Isaiah 11. It goes on, it's talking about the Lord Jesus. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. 
But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Okay, save that thought. We'll refer back to it when we get into the vision of the Lord Jesus. So, in uh, the introduction, as we call it, in verses 4 through 8, uh, John begins with a statement of the triune God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and then God the Son, upon whom he dwells at length here for four more verses. Let's look at some of these titles here. Jesus Christ, because he says the faithful witness. I like that. Boy, the faithful witness. I can't say I'm always a faithful witness, can you? Boy, you know, he was the and is the faithful witness. He never shrunk from saying the truth. He always, everything he said was true. I think of uh, John 3 when Nicodemus came to him by night, remember, and Jesus uh, dropped on him that phrase that's so abused today outside the church. You know, you must be born again. And it blew him away. He couldn't understand what he was talking about. And Jesus said, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And he went on to say, we speak that which we know and testify what we have seen. Talking about himself. That's him. He, he testifies what he's saying. Imagine, he's been to heaven. He made it. He, he, can tell, he can say a lot. And what he sees and what he knows, he speaks. Isn't that good? The faithful witness. Praise God. Boy, he told us things we'd never know about God, about himself as God, about us, about sin, about hell. You got the clearest picture of hell in the Bible in the words of Jesus. We'd never know it unless he told us. And salvation. The faithful witness. Uh, then the ruler over the kings of the earth. Great title, boy. And of course that reminds us later when he comes, it says there was a name on him. King of kings. Isn't that good? You have kings, you know, great, great men of the earth. And it says he's the king over the kings. And the Lord of lords. And then, I hope this jolts you every time you read it. It should. Because in the, in the midst of this superlative description of this awesome one, this great one, look what it says. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now that should jolt you when you read it. After what you've just read. There are many passages in the scripture like this that God puts there deliberately for its, its, I mean this reverently, its shocking value. We should never become accustomed to the idea that the great, great almighty God the Son, the omnipotent one, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is the one who died for us. And here, after describing him as the ruler over the kings of the earth, he goes on to say, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Wow. I think of um, other passages in uh, Hebrews, for example. You know them. Uh, it says, for example, in chapter 1, um, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. That's Jesus. For whom? Everything, did you know it was created for him? You were created for yourself. You were created for him. For his pleasure. To bring him pleasure. Do you know that? 
You don't exi- exist to bring yourself pleasure. And by whom are all things? He created all things. That makes sense. If he's going to create all things, he's not going to create them to go off and have their own independent existence. He's going to create them for himself. And that's what that says. It says, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in making the captain of their salvation perfect uh, through suffering. Suffering. That's incredible. The captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. You see the, the jolt there? The originator of all things, the object of all creation. And, it's, and it says it was fitting for him to be made perfect through suffering. Uh, again, in, in uh, chapter 1 of Hebrews, it says, uh, upholding all things by the word of his power, that's Jesus. While he's doing that, that's what it says, upholding, that's a gerund, that's a present indicative. Right now, while he's doing it, upholding, I-N-G, all things by the word of his power. While he did that, that's what that's saying. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Can you imagine that? Every molecule, every atom, every created thing, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You get the jolt there? Man, that's who it was that purged you and me from our sins. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. I wasn't worth it. What a great Savior we have. We're going to see it later uh, in chapter 5. We saw it in the devotional last, last week where the angel says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember that? When they were looking for somebody that was uh, worthy to open the, the scroll. And he says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and what does he see? A lamb. A lamb is freshly slain. There it is again. That, that jolting factor. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when you look, he's the lamb of God. Same person. One person. Ruler of the universe. Savior of my soul. The one who died for me. And here it is again. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What a beautiful picture. Can you, did you get the imagery there? Who, he washed you if you're a believer. He, has, he, personally, Jesus Christ, washed you from your sins in his own blood. Remember John 13. That's, that's what this harkens back to for me. When he took a towel, laid aside his garments, uh, took a towel, took a basin of water, and he went around and he took those disciples' dirty feet and one by one, he personally took that water and washed their dirty feet. Wouldn't that have been something? And then when he came to Peter and Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. He washed Peter's dirty feet. Well, he washed my dirty sins away and water couldn't do it. It took his own blood and that's what he shed so that he could wash it away. Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus? Notice, you can't do it. He's the one that does it. You need to come to him. Confess your sins to him. Agree with him about your sin. And he'll wash you from your sins in his own blood. I tell you, there's no better feeling in the world than knowing your sins are washed away. And as a result, he didn't just wash us from our sins. He didn't just stop there. What else? Made us kings and priests. Uh, the idea is, I think it says in some of your translations, made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. 
Wow. He didn't just stop there. He exalted us. Isn't that great? A king, here we are. Believers in this room, we're a kingdom of priests. Priests. We are qualified, think of that, to offer up acceptable sacrifices to God. You know not everybody can do that? You know that? Lots of people may offer them up, but he doesn't want them. But we're qualified by Jesus Christ to do that. Not animals, sacrifices of our lives. You know, obedience, time, gifts. Best of all our bodies, Romans chapter 12. Kings and priests to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good place for an amen. Right? Let's pause here. Amen. All right. Okay, we talked about this verse last week. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So, another amen. Wow. Every eye. I, I, just, I like to think about that. You like, you like to meditate about Scripture? I do. Meditate. That's scriptural. That's not from India. That's, that's scriptural. simply means to ruminate, you know, to chew on it like a cow's cud. I love to meditate on things. And I love to meditate on this one. And just imagine what it's going to be like when every eye sees him. Try to envision the scene. Wow. Every eye. As we said in Philippians 2, you can add every tongue and every knee, bowing and confessing the Lordship of Christ there. And um, it says, every eye will see him. And it gives a list here of some of the people that will see him. It says, they also who pierced him. Think of those that were personally responsible for crucifying him. Imagine what it will be like to be one of those individuals to see him then. That's a chilling thought. Look at Matthew 26. As I read this last night, it just jumped out at me. I imagine it may even be cross-referenced, but it just came to me. What he said to the high priest, he predicted this event. Matthew 26. This is where he's being uh, questioned in his kangaroo court. As they call it, his trial before his crucifixion. And uh, the, chief priest, the high priest is questioning him here in, in uh, Matthew 26, verse 63. And in fulfilling the scripture, uh, it says that he, uh, like a sheep before his shearers, is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was silent. Imagine what he could have said, but he didn't answer. Although he does say something at the end here, not in rebuke or retaliation, but, but a simple prophecy. Verse 63, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Here's the living God standing in his midst, by the way. It's the one he's addressing. That you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, wow, hereafter you will see, remember every eye? You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Whew. Now, link that with Revelation chapter 1, and that high priest is going to look in that coming day, and he's going to see, and he's, I, I have a feeling those words are just going to ring in his mind. When Jesus told him, you will see me coming in the clouds. And what will it be like? Well, it's, it's going to be the same as it is for the, anybody else that doesn't know him. Maybe a little worse in his case. Because it says here, 
all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. It doesn't mean that they're going to mourn for him. They're going to mourn for themselves. He's talking about fear. He's not talking about sadness for the death of Jesus. They're going to mourn. It's a strong word. Indicating a, a gut-level revulsion of fear. You can imagine that. What will it be like to see him coming? You know, in a moment, it's going to dawn. This is the Jesus that I rejected. And it's too late. Boy. Mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is one of the few times when I like the NASB. I don't know if anybody got, I think everybody got rid of all the NASBs here by now. But uh, uh, it has in here, I think if you have one, you'll see it says the Lord God. Actually, it says the Lord God. Clear statement of Jesus. That's right, we don't need that. We're going to talk about the deity of Christ right now. We don't, we don't need that. There's plenty of other bases here for the deity of Christ. We're going to look at it now. This is a unique title of Jehovah, of God. Uh, it begins really in the Old Testament in Isaiah, we'll look at that in two places, where God, speaking about himself, he, he, he has many ways of describing himself to convey you know, who he is to us. And there's one majestic place towards the end of Isaiah where he says, I am the first and the last. Okay? Now, I hope that impresses you. I mean, that's a, that's a great statement. I am the first and the last. And that, that idea is carried through all of these parallel statements. There are other statements of that same idea, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the same thing. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter like the A and the Z, the first and the last again. Okay? You see, the idea is, he's first, first of all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything, there was God. And there wasn't anything before him. And there wasn't anything with him for the longest time. Now think about that. I need things. You know? I need food. I can't exist all by myself. If you stick me in some place all by myself without anything, I'm going to die. I need things to keep me going, you know, right? Aren't you like that? Huh? I need some place where I can lie down and rest. I need a roof over my head to protect me from the elements. I need sunshine. I need, I need a lot of things to, to sustain me. Think of this. In the beginning, when there was nothing but God, he didn't need anything. He is. <laughs> he doesn't need anything. You see? The first, before anything was, he was. The self-sufficient one. But then, just in case there might be some mistake and somebody says, well, who's second? There isn't any. There's no third. There's no... He's the first and he's the last. Okay? And everything in between, by implication. He's everything. Isn't that great? What a statement. And it also says he's the everlasting one. From eternity past to eternity future, he is. He is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega... And the other way of saying it is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. There it is again. That's right. Great statement of who God is. Uh, there are two verses, Isaiah 44, 6 and 48, 12. That's where he says, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. What a statement. 
That's God. Okay, that's Jehovah speaking. God Almighty. Back there in Isaiah. That's, that's his title. I think you can understand there can only be one first and one last, okay? <laughs> There's only one who can be the first and the last here. That's God. And so if, 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 some, if someone claims that as their title, then they have to be God. That makes sense to you? Huh? And here, Jesus in verse 8 is making that claim. Uh, notice back in verse 4, where we had the Trinity. It was the Father, God the Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now look, we're going to make a real quick tour here. Verse 10. I heard the, uh, behind me the sound of a voice like a trumpet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. God's title. Who's speaking here? We went on to find out. Remember who it was? Nobody knows. Later, the same one speaking says in verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead. That's Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I'll tell you, in this scene, of, in this vision of heaven that God was giving him, if that were anybody but God saying that, that would be the last thing he'd say. That's God. Jesus Christ, God the Son. Uh, verse 17, just before verse 18, he said it again, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Again, taking the title of God. Well, it's even later at the end of the epistle uh, as well. Chapter 21, verse 6, where God takes the title, God the Father. And then in chapter 22, verse 13, it's clearly Jesus. In fact, a few verses later, he says, I, Jesus, in case there's any doubt. Okay, verse uh, 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island, it is called Patmos for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, here we'll insert our brief historical uh, background for the, the letter here, and then we're going to look at a nice big map to, to get you oriented. Um, you might want to turn back to your atlas in the, uh, in the back of your Bible if you have one. You should be familiar with this. You know Paul's missionary journeys. He typically started from Antioch, his home assembly, and uh, eventually God took him over to Greece, but for the longest time, he was up in, in what's now presently Turkey, right? Are you, are you getting oriented here? We'll look at a map here in a second. It was called Asia Minor in those days. And um, he planted many churches. And on his uh, missionary journeys, even when he went over to Greece, he'd always have to go through there. And whenever he did, whenever he went through, he would visit the churches, strengthen them, proceed to Greece, come back, strengthen them again. So they really got quite a, uh, a ministry from Paul. Well, the Lord finally uh, took Paul to himself in 68 AD. So he was probably in his 60s or about there when he was, when he, uh, was beheaded in Rome for the sake of the gospel. And uh, the Lord uh, apparently laid it on the heart of uh, the Apostle John to pick up where Paul left, at least in part of that area of Asia. Because he then... At, at an age of retirement, John would have been in his 60s, in 68 AD. He went and served another 30 years in that harvest field of Asia Minor. And um, served the Lord faithfully. In fact, 
he was uh, so outspoken for the Lord and so bold that in his 90s, at the writing of this letter here, he got sent in exile by Domitian, the Roman emperor, because he got sick of hearing him talk about Jesus. In his 90s, isn't that good? Huh? You're never too old, are you? And here he is in exile in Patmos, and he's not sulking, you know. He's not saying, oh boy, the Lord really messed up on this one. He's in the Spirit. We're going to talk about that. He's filled with the Spirit on the island of Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day. No doubt worshiping the Lord, remembering Him on the Lord's Day. And this vision comes. So, he had been serving faithfully for 30 years in this area of Asia Minor. Now, I need a couple of brothers up front. Maybe Matt, maybe Noah, could you come up here? I want you to hold this up for everybody to see. Everybody knows I'm into maps. And I happen to have a high resolution. Maybe you go over here. Hold that up where everybody can see it. That's a good idea. I want you to get up there. Okay, good. Okay, now, if you look on your map, this is a very close-up view. Maybe you want to turn a little bit so they can see. There you go, better. This is the coast of Turkey here, the, the uh, western coast. Are you with me? You got it? So uh, Turkey is, is a big, almost kind of a rectangular chunk like this, all right? And uh, we're going to try to point out here where all these places are. And I have a little helper map to help me. It turns out that um, the seven churches that are mentioned here, two of them, the sites are completely gone. There are no current, current cities there. In fact, uh, the only major one today is right here, Izmir, and that's uh, Smyrna. Okay? Remember that? Li- this is the list. You're familiar with what I'm doing, right? These are the seven churches there in Asia. This is to whom the epistle is written. Smyrna's there. Ephesus, now that's the one we're probably most familiar with because there's a letter written to that. It was a thriving city in those days, but uh, it's just a little fishing village of about 2,000 people now, right there on the coast, about uh, 40 miles south of Smyrna. Okay? The uh, ruins of the Temple of Diana are still standing there. Uh, Okay, now, it's interesting, they don't have their their names. They haven't preserved their names. In fact, I should say that. At the writing of this epistle, this was a, uh, a flourishing place for the gospel, wasn't it? You know, due to, due to Paul's preaching mainly, and then John's follow-up. Well, today, of course, it's a graveyard for the gospel. In 1960, in the whole country of Turkey, I don't know how many tens of millions or hundreds of millions the population is, there were ten known believers. Ten! We got more than that in this room, I believe. In the whole country. Why? Now, it's, it's uh, improved somewhat. There, there's believed to be about a dozen uh, small assemblies throughout the Turkey. But pray for Turkey. Pray for Tom Aiken and others like him that are preaching the word there. Okay, uh, now we've got to go north to a place called Bergama. That's the city today. We're going to see here. Okay, that's going to become important in a minute. All right, now we go uh, southeast from Pergamum or Pergamos or Pergamos to Thyatira, which is in modern Akizar, right here. It's a small village. Next is uh, Sardis, and Sardis is just south of this lake here, and all it is is a heap of ruins. It does, it's all gone. It's not a city anymore. Next in the list is Philadelphia. Uh, Allah, see here. Allah, of course, the Muslim name for God. 
and that's what it means. Is God God is glorious or something like that in uh, Arabic. Okay, Laodicea is uh, okay. I couldn't find the village itself. That's right because uh, it's a heap of ruins as well. Sardis and Laodicea are all gone. And uh, okay, that's it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There we go. So there's the churches. Okay. And as he addresses them, he starts with Ephesus and goes in a circle to Laodicea. Now, where's John? Well, you may have a Patmos actually labeled on your, on your map there, but if you do at that scale, it's going to be just a, a, a dot. Because uh, Patmos is right here. Can you see that? Little north-south white thing right there? Can I move the platform? I sure can. Okay, so when he was sent in exile, remember, so John had been serving up here for 30 years. Domitian sent him out here in this desolate island. It's only uh, 11 square miles. It's a dinky thing, right? Right there. I'll, I'll put the sticker under it. Okay, so you got the picture? So really, you know, we think of Asia Minor, Turkey. It's really much larger than this, and we think maybe the churches are scattered all over the place. Actually, they were pretty much uh, concentrated in, a, in this small area here. Okay, remember that now. All right, thanks, brother. Just go ahead and lay it down there. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave this up here. You can come up and look at it later if you want. So now, get the picture here. John is in exile. This isn't a resort. It's a desolate place. Uh, no fellowship, you know. No encouragement except from the Lord, which is enough for him. And here he is. I picture it. Every, everybody may have their own picture of what it must have been like for him to have this uh, vision. I kind of picture maybe outside, you know. He might have been inside, I don't know. But I like to picture maybe uh, outside on a hillside, you know, worshiping the Lord. Uh, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was in the Spirit. That's a, that's an, don't just read over that. It's an important phrase. We, we're not going to spend time preaching on the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Most of you have heard that. But uh, there's a difference between being indwelt, baptized, or some of the other ministries of the Holy Spirit, which is true of every believer all the time, versus being filled, which is uh, your choice and mine, you see. And it comes with uh, no sin in my life and a yieldedness to the control of the Spirit of God in my life. And the point is, if John had not been filled with the Spirit or in the Spirit, he wouldn't have had this vision, you see. God doesn't, he's not going to reveal himself to us if we are not filled with the Spirit. Important thing to remember. But John was on this Lord's Day. And so here he is, and as I said, I picture him out maybe on a day like this. Interestingly, that uh, Patmos is at the 37th parallel. That's right where we are here in California. We, you know, we, you've heard we have a Mediterranean climate here. Well, that's what it comes from. Uh, it would have been a very similar, in fact it is, very similar to the weather here on Patmos. So maybe a day like this, I can see John out there, you know, uh, worshiping the Lord in his 90 years of, of uh, life, having known the Lord for 60 of them. And uh, here, here it happens. I heard behind me. So it's behind him, okay? Not in front of him to begin with. Behind him, he hears a loud voice as of a trumpet. Remember, picture language here. Be careful now. It's not going to sound like, he says, as of. Simile, metaphor, every place here. The idea is that it's loud and clear. Okay? Saying, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Imagine sitting there, you know, thinking of the Lord and, and uh, all of a sudden you hear this, this uh, voice behind you saying that majestically in power. Wouldn't, wouldn't that catch your attention? <laughs> wow. It begins with a statement by the Lord Jesus of who he is. I am God. Wow. And then, immediately followed by a command. What you see, John doesn't know it yet, but he's going to see a lot of things. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, the ones we just saw. So the purpose of this book that we love so much now, Revelation, was primarily given by the Lord Jesus to John to write down and circulate among these seven churches. And in fact, as most of you know, when we get into chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses each one of those churches personally. And he says, I know you. I know your works. And he's going to talk about the church. Sometimes he's going to commend the church. And sometimes he's going to find criticism. And he's going to tell them something to do. Okay, so uh, he goes on to say, write in a book, and he gives the seven cities. And so, so John is sitting there, he's heard all of this, and it's not until after the Lord Jesus has said that that he turns. Okay, so imagine, just picture John now turning, and he's probably saying, what am I going to see? You know? And he turns, and the first thing he notices is the seven golden lampstands. So imagine that now, where did they come from? You know? Seven, all of a sudden, seven golden, you know, they'd be vertical things with a bowl with oil in it burning. Okay, that's, that's a lampstand. Seven of them, and they'd be, I said it's significant that Jesus went in a circle when he described the cities. Well, the lampstands apparently form something of a circle because it says that the one that was like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is in the midst of them. Okay, isn't that interesting? So picture the map here with the churches in a circle and Jesus, Jesus is in the midst. What a picture, huh? Uh, several things there. First of all, between, notice that Jesus standing in the lampstand. There's nothing between him and the lampstands. Okay, there's no hierarchy. There's no headquarters of the church somewhere between Jesus and the church. It's Jesus and the church. Each church autonomous and directly ruled by the Lord Jesus. He is the Lord of the church. Each church. And a picture of intimacy as well. Remember when Paul had been persecuting the believers and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the churches? Right? And what he said? Yeah, why persecutest thou me? Isn't that interesting? He was persecuting the believers in the churches. And Jesus says, you persecute my believers. You, perse- you persecute my churches. You're persecuting me. We're that close. You see. Okay, now let's, let's focus in on, on uh, this image, the, the, the uh, dominating picture, really, in the first chapter here of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember now, as we go through this, that much of it is figurative language. So when it says that a sword came out of his mouth, okay, when, believer, you see him in glory, there will not be a sword in his mouth. It's a picture. It's an image. Okay? And it's teaching us something. And even some of the things are like, as, okay? We're going to see that throughout the book of Revelation. Begins, um, in the midst of the seven lampstands, verse 13. 
one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Well, the, like the Son of Man. Of course, the Son of Man, that's the title of Jesus. Really, you know, it doesn't begin in the Gospels. It's actually in the book of Daniel. It begins that far back. Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Remember when we read Isaiah 11? You notice there, it was a, what was the picture of it? It was a picture of him as judge. Did you notice that in Isaiah 11? The passage you read earlier? Huh? And it said he was girded with two things as a judge. Remember what they were? Righteousness and faithfulness. Boy. The kind of qualities you need to have in a judge. Okay? By the way, this picture, in case you haven't gathered it, is is a picture of Jesus Christ as judge. Tom and Angela are very familiar with that idea. Except this is the great, perfect judge is going to judge the whole earth because he's qualified. Uh, verse 14, His head and his hair were white like wool. That's right out of Daniel. Again, chapter 7. There, uh, When Daniel sees this one with, with the hair white as wool... It's, he's called the Ancient of Days. Okay? Ancient of Days. Speaking about his wisdom. His white so in his eyes like a flame of fire. The, picturing the idea that it's a penetrating look. I look at you right now and I see a sea of happy smiling faces. That's all I can see. Some of them are a little drowsy. But I can't get beyond the exterior. You know? Who knows what Evil lurks in the hearts of men. Isn't that what the old radio program said? You know, I don't know what's going on in your hearts. You know what Jesus does? That's, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Jesus is here right now. And as he looks out, as he does every moment, he sees inside your heart everything. I don't mean just the thoughts, but the intents, the motives behind them. Wow. Eyes like a flame of fire. Isn't that a good thing for a judge? Huh? Your judges can make mistakes if they just look on the outward appearance. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. You see, he gets beneath. Uh, okay, again, be careful now. Jesus' feet aren't made out of brass. It says his feet were like fine brasses of refined furnace. God was telling John something here. What's brass or bronze a picture of throughout the scripture? Judgment. Very good. Well, this, this front row is really with it this morning, you know, putting you guys to shame. Judgment. Remember the tabernacle. What was that big altar made of out in front of the tabernacle by the gate? Bronze. Yeah, bronze or brass. That's right. Judgment. Wherever you see bronze or brass in the Bible, it's a picture of judgment. The judge. Significant that it's his feet. You know why? Because there's this awesome verse later toward the end of the book talking about Jesus, and it says, He treadeth out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. You hear that? That's Jesus. Treading out, the, like you know, stomping grapes, huh? In Italy. He treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That's Jesus, it says. Judgment. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Not a picture of the uh, man veiling his glory, walking about the dusty roads of Judea anymore. Uh-uh. The veil's gone. And now we see him as he is. 
and he is about to take on the role of judge. And then uh, his voice, wow, the sound of many waters. It didn't, it wasn't a gurgling sound. Sound of many waters. And Eric can relate to this one. I know many of you can relate, but I think of Eric when I, when I read this. When I uh, visited them in Brazil, he took me to a place called the Foziguasu. It's one of the uh, largest waterfalls in the world. It's not just one, it's dozens of them spread over miles. And there's this one place, ironically, it's called, unfortunately, the Devil's Throat. But it's a place where the water comes down on three sides. Okay, it's more than 100 feet deep. And the water is just churning over from all three sides. And it's, it's so awesome. You can see it from miles away, the spray from this thing. I thought it was a fire when we first saw it coming on the bus. Way off in the distance. You see the, the plume of spray coming up from this thing. And in Brazil, I love Brazil. I, I love visiting places like that in places in Europe where we saw the castles. Because they're not worried if you fall or something. That's, that's your tough luck. And so they, they build ramps right up to the edge of the devil's throat and over. You can stand right there and look down into the devil's throat. And we did that. And we had to yell at the top of our lungs to hear each other as we stood there. The noise is so deafening. It's just awesome to hear that roar. And I wish I could have a tape of it and play it for you right now. Because he says that was like the voice of Jesus when he spoke. Wow. Can you imagine? You know, this isn't some waffling judge. When he speaks and declares a judgment, I'll tell you, it's final, it's correct, it's right, it's righteous, and it's unchangeable. Nobody's going to take any issue with it. And just the voice is going to be enough to convey that idea. He had on his right hand seven stars. Well, in this case, we don't have to guess what that is. You might read that and say, what in the world is that? Well, he tells us later. We're going to look at that next time we get into Revelation. The seven stars are, represent seven angels. The lampstands represent seven churches. And the stars in his hand represent seven angels, one for each church. And the idea, they're in his right hand. That's Right hand is a picture of power, authority. He has the authority over angels. He created them. There it is, beck and call. Hebrews 1 says they're ministering spirits. For, for us. Okay, the seven stars. Then out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And again, it's an image. It's a picture teaching John and us something about this great, great judge. What, what does that remind you of? The sharp two-edged sword. Word of God. Very good. That's right. Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is quick in the King James or in other translations, alive and powerful. This book, did you know that? You know this book is alive? Did you know that it's powerful? It says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Not just a single edge, double-edged, two-edged sword. Able to divide to the dividing asunder, that is where the separation is, between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. Wow. That's, it cuts pretty fine, that's the idea, you see. And is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here we are again. Getting down to the motives, you see, for actions. Not just the actions themselves, but the thoughts and the intents. Of the we can say one thing and mean another. And the Word of God does that. What comes out of His mouth. We're going to talk about that very quickly now. What, what, how that's going to apply, I believe, uh, in His judgment. And uh, it goes on to say, And all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You got that? All things, that's talking about your heart and mine, everything. 
are naked and exposed and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, i.e., to whom we are going to answer. Well, I think I'd do what John did, wouldn't you? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I'm sorry, my, my words, the, the words here are, are weak. But I'll promise you, if you had seen what John saw, you'd do the same thing, boy. You know, it's only because of God's grace your heart doesn't stop when you see him. And, oh, I love this. Jesus, the judge of the whole earth, look at this. But he laid his right hand on me. Wow, isn't that great? Imagine that. His right, the one that had the stars, that, that figure of, of authority and power. He, he reaches over and it says he laid his right hand on John to encourage him. And he, and he accompanies it with words. He says, do not be afraid. Right out of the Gospels. You know, in the King James, fear not. Don't be afraid. And then he restates again who he is. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. We talked about that before. That's grammatically incorrect for anybody else to say. You cannot say I was dead. Okay? Jesus alone has that honor and privilege. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Praise God. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. The idea, okay, the, the keys are a picture of, of control. He has complete access to death. Earlier it said that he was the firstborn from the dead. That ties in with this. Firstborn. When we hear that word, of course, the idea jumps out as first. And that's, that's in there. He is the first who was risen from the dead. Right now, he's the only one that has risen from the dead. Okay? Now, the saints that have died before are with him, but they don't get the resurrection body until we do. We all get it at the same time. Okay? You want to go into detail about, well, where's our body and all that stuff? We can talk about that later. It's not important. The point is, he is the first one. He went first. Isn't that great? I'm, I'm glad he did. You know, what is death? It, it, for me, it used to be something to be feared. But Jesus has gone through it ahead of me. And now, he's going to take me through it and make sure I get safe on the other side. Man, praise God. He's the first one from the dead. But now let me tell you, I want to be honest with you here, here this morning. There are some here who don't know Jesus Christ. It's only those that know him that are going to be safely taken the other side by him. Okay? I just tell you, there's a fork in the road on the other side of death. Okay? And, and when you die, what that means is you leave your body. This isn't you. I keep telling the guys this. This isn't you. This thing's going to is going to turn to dust. This body is not me. Okay? My spirit, my soul, the immaterial part, theologically is called, is me. It's you. And when what really is you leaves this container behind, you don't control where you go anymore. Jesus does. You see? And he will take you to himself. He will guide you safely to the other side. In fact, to the place that he has prepared for you. Isn't that great? If you know him. But if you don't know him, then the picture is later in chapter 20. It's a great white throne, and he will make sure you're there. The scene of judgment. Okay, and he has the keys of Hades. That's the idea. He has control, you see. When it comes to death, he's the one that controls that. And then he gives the command, write the things. And as we said before, really, verse 19 is an outline of the whole book. 
the things that uh, you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. The things you have seen is what he's just seen of Jesus. That's chapter 1. The things that are are chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, as they really were in Asia at that time. It are. And then the things which will take place after this. And chapter 4 begins with the idea, after these things, and so from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, that's the things that will take place after this. Turn to uh, Romans 14, and we'll close with this section here. Before Jesus turns this piercing gaze on the seven churches, I want to talk to the Christians, the believers here this morning. Romans chapter 14. Because each one of us is going to have that piercing gaze. This picture of Jesus as judge. We're going to face him, believer, not, at, not in regard to our sin, but at the judgment seat of Christ. And you should think about that. We should be preparing for that moment, brothers and sisters. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Not repeatable, not undoable. And the picture that is given here of the perfect judge, the righteous judge, the faithful judge, is a picture of the one who I will face as my Savior, my Lord, at the judgment seat of Christ. It's mentioned here in Romans 14. It's specifically talked about. It's all over the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, as well as many other places where uh, crowns are discussed. So it's a very clear truth, doctrine, that each believer will appear before Jesus. And here it says in Romans 14, read along with me, beginning in verse 10, why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Talking about believers here now. This is not for the unsaved. There's a great white throne. And there's no uh, salvation there. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, and every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Are you ready to do that? I want you to really think about that. I've been thinking about that as I've been preparing for revelation, thinking about my life. Are you ready for this moment? Because it's going to happen very soon, in fact. One way or the other, whether Jesus comes or uh, you die. What's it going to be like? I thought about that. You know, you're going to have a crystal clear view of your own life. That's, that's number one. Uh, many of you have heard my testimony when I got run over by that truck at the Oakland Army Terminal back in 1969. Uh, it's really true. My life flashed before my eyes. And it's an experience that uh, you can't understand unless you've had it. But in a moment's time, it's like I had the clearest vision you could ever have. I didn't know Jesus at the time. And I saw my whole life like in a flash. And it scared the daylights out of me. Because all of a sudden I realized what I'd been wasting my life on. And I knew I didn't know God. I wasn't ready. Nobody had to tell me that. I just saw it so clearly and it chilled me to the bone. There's going to be a clarity of view so clear of your own life. Well, what's, what's going to happen? You say, give an account. And I think people have this picture of a discussion. It's not going to be a discussion, I don't believe. There's no need for it, you see. Jesus is not going to have to say, well, tell me about your life. Does he have to say that? He already knows. 
So it's not going to be like that. But you're both going to be so aware of what your life was like. You're going to see it so clearly. So it's not going to be a, a list of questions for information. He doesn't need that. I really believe he will deal with each one of us the way he has always dealt since creation in trying to bring reflection to people. And you know how he does that? With questions. With questions. I really think that's the way. Re- way back in the beginning of the Bible, think of that. All the uh, statements of God to Adam and Eve at, at the very beginning there. Nothing but questions. But they're penetrating questions, you see. You don't even have to answer them, really. As you think about the answers to what he asks you, you're going to see things so clearly. Remember when they were hiding? And it sounds like such a trivial question, but it's not. He says, where are you? Imagine being Adam or Eve, hiding from God, and you hear him say, where are you? But it doesn't make you feel. You know, I'm hiding over here. You look, look to the life of the Lord Jesus. His ministry, when he was uh, helping people along and getting them to see the issues, he would ask them questions. When he dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, why do you go about seeking to kill me? Imagine hearing that question and thinking about Why? Why am I going about trying to kill him? You start thinking about your motive, you see. Your intents. Think of, um, on the Sabbath, he said, which is lawful on the Sabbath to... To save life or to kill? That's a good, good question, isn't it? When he was working with the disciples, he would ask them questions. He, he said, uh, who, do you, who do you say that I am? Think about these questions as I say them. How would you answer it? Later on, many of the disciples, when he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they didn't want anything to do with him. They left. And he turned to the remaining few. And he said, will you go also? Think about that question. No doubt they were thinking about their own hearts and maybe the thought, you know, hey, all these guys are leaving, I ought to. And they really had to think about their relationship with Jesus and how serious am I committed to him? You know, thank God for Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's where this idea of the sword, you see, comes in. The word of God, boy, he has a way of asking a question that just penetrates right to the heart of the issue, right to the thoughts and intents. And I believe that's the way it's going to be. What will it be like for you? Did you begin well and finish well? Let's say it was right now. Could you say with Paul, I love this, Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last piece of writing that he ever wrote. God preserved it in the Bible. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He could say that. He could look over his life and say that. I want to be able to say that. You know? Or will you have begun well and fizzled? Think of the churches we're going to look at later. Uh, Ephesus. Jesus, Jesus says this to them. Imagine hearing these words. He says, I have somewhat against you. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. Me. You don't love me the way you used to. Remember when you were first saved and, and nothing was too, too great for me, you know? Nothing was too costly. No sacrifice was too great for me. But that's gone. You don't love me like that anymore. You've drawn limits, you know, to how far you will go for me. 
Or worse, the church at Laodicea. Because you're lukewarm. That was a prosperous church, by the way. You know, they, they looked at their lives, and interesting, they said, we have need of nothing. We're rich. We have lots of goods. Indication, by the way, that us in the, in the fat uh, 20, 20th century America, prosperity, by the way, is not a sign of the blessing of God. Did you know that? Material prosperity is not a sign of the blessing of God. Unsaved people get rich. Just because I'm prospering materially, that doesn't mean that's a blessing from God. In fact, in the case of the church of Laodicea, it was, it was a bad case of blindness. It dulled them. And Jesus said, uh, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. He, he used words to describe them. He said, Wretch, rich, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Finish well. Well, as you and I, one by one, it says, each one will give account as we stand there and we look at him. And he's going to look at us with that penetrating gaze. And we're going to see things so clearly. I think at some point we are going to, it's going to sink into us as we see the scars on his, on his hands. That this was the price that it took to pay for my deliverance. He really went all the way for me. I think it's really going to sink in then. You know? Look at those scars. That was for me. And I'm, I think of uh, questions he asked uh, later of the disciples. I think the first thing uh, that's going to come up for, for review is simply my relationship with him. That's, that's why he left me here. You know, is to know him. To draw closer to him as a believer. And I think of how he asked Philip at the, uh, at the end of his ministry. He said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you do not know me? I hope he doesn't ask me that question. You know? When he talks about our relationship, I think the area of prayer might come up. The Word of God. What have you done with my Word? 